So this morning I'm going to be talking about the subject of the Christian in politics, and it's not an easy subject to talk about. I think, though, this time of year it's something that definitely comes to our minds. And as I was thinking about this, the first thing that came to mind um, was the year 2004. And I don't know how many of you all remember, but George W. Bush was up for re-election. He was running against John Kerry, and on the ballot in many states was a question of gay marriage. And I remember clearly in the days leading up to that election feeling an increasing sense of dread. Because would God's appointed leader win? A lot of people were saying that John Kerry was going to win. Um, people were tired of uh, wars overseas. And, um, and I wondered, would, would the American people vote for God's laws? And the election before that, if you all can recall, it just dragged on for, for um, several weeks. And finally, the Supreme Court declared George W. The, um, the winner. But this election wrapped up very quickly. George W. Bush won easily. Um, the laws that were um, um, about gay marriage um, passed um, universally as well. And I, I went to sleep pretty happy that evening. And I, I don't know what I thought would happen. But... Some, I believe, that the moral majority had triumphed, that the American people had come through in the clutch, and that things were going to be different. And now, 16 years later, many of the things that were on the ballot that day have been accepted across this country. And I don't know how much has really changed. 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17 is one of the passages that talks about the ways that we relate to government. Um, so basically, I'm going to do an introduction. I'm going to move from there into our duty to the government and then talk about some of the dangers that Christians face when dealing with political things and then finally finish up with a, a kind of a final mission statement. So 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And we know that the early church at this time was dealing with a very evil government that actively persecuted them at times. We know that Nero was the emperor at this point. He was not kind to Christians, and he wasn't good in general. It wasn't even just Christian people, but uh, many others who suffered under his rule. And yet Peter identifies certain things as Christians' duty to the government. And I'm just going to list them here, and we'll kind of break them down a little bit down the road. But the first thing is to obey the government. The second thing is probably more important, and that is we are to identify them as God-appointed even when they are not godly. So that's the idea that we understand that the government officials who were in charge over us, even when they are not Christ-honoring, are still put there for a reason, and that God is in charge. The third thing is to live in such a way that we silence ignorant people. That is, we are to live in a consistent, non-hypocritical way. Next thing is to live in a free way, 
but still as servants of God. So therefore, not only serving God, but also serving his appointed people on earth. Then fearing God, this first, we must respect God's commands first, and then honoring the emperor. And honoring the emperor means respecting his laws, paying his taxes, and praying for him personally. And so let's just go over those quickly once more. Obey the government, identify it as God-appointed, living to silence ignorant people, living in a free way, fearing God, honoring the emperor. The early Christians were not dealing with a democracy. It wasn't as though the Christians could run for emperor or even vote for a new, better, or Christian emperor. I asked this question before, but um, um, I'll just give the answer here, which is um, when we think about who the emperor was, the emperor was generally not um, an elected person, but he wasn't necessarily a hereditary person either. So it was often a general who had defeated all the other generals who were in the Roman Empire and therefore became emperor. And this was uh, more often than not the case. So um, a lot of emperors died in battle, and and for most of the, the time that the Roman gum, government was in place, it was not a hereditary office. But even after the time of Constantine, as the Roman Empire became quote-unquote Christianized, there were limited options for Christians to be involved in government. Most rulership positions were hereditary. And at the same time, after the time of Constantine, most of the people within the empire anyway would have claimed to be Christians. Some of the early Christian authors talked about how the Christians uh, responded to this sort of thing. So Celsus indicated that the early Christians refused military service and refused to take part in governing cities. Origen wrote that the Christians do did more as an army of piety that prayed for the well-being of the emperor and the safety of the empire. And I had to ask myself what it meant to be an army of piety. Are we there today? Um, it feels like something that um, maybe we could do well to try to, to reinstate. And over time, the church became intertwined with political governments in the, in the Middle Ages, and many of those who ruled claimed to be Christians. And at the same time, even then, the rulers for the were hereditary, so people couldn't run for the offices. You couldn't challenge George III or Louis XIV for rulership of their countries um, without a battle. But with the advent of democracies and parliaments, there were a lot more options for Christians to be involved with governing a nation. And as I was thinking about this, there are two certain time periods that I, I would like to explore, just thinking about times when Christianity was in the balance and when people, individuals, tried to make a difference in a political sense who were Christians. And the first one I would like to bring up would be William Wilberforce. He lived from 1759 to 1833, and he was independently wealthy. His father and grandfather had been wealthy merchants, and they died when he was in college and left the money and the business to him. And he was always a church-going man and was elected to the House of Commons when he was in his 20s. But he would have said that he was not a Christian at that point. 
And in 1784, at the age of 35, he experienced a real conversion. Um, And I think this was genuine. And at this point, he talked to a pastor that we're familiar with by the name of John Newton. And John Newton, of course, wrote many hymns. He wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. That is probably the most famous hymn, but there's lots of other ones. Um, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, and, and we could go down the list. And John Newton counseled him to, to continue in Parliament and try to make a difference. And so pretty quickly, he began to use his membership in Parliament to advocate, advocate for a number of things, specifically to push for the ending of the slave trade. He also ended up getting laws passed that allowed for the prosecution of things like drinking too much alcohol, public cursing, and profanation of the Lord's Day. And so what was the end result of his efforts? Well, we know that the slaves were freed. It was very expensive, but the English Empire basically bought every slave in the room in the um, British Empire and freed them. We know that Victorian England ended up being a much more moral place to live. So people in Victorian England had morality But I don't know that we could say that it was a more Christian place to live. Certainly there were Christians there, but how many more? The next thing that I thought of was prohibition. And this is something that is more uh, United States-centered thing. So at the end of the 1800s, people began to advocate very strongly for the prohibition of the sales of alcohol. People, Christians thought that much of the sin and decay they saw around them in society was um, because men, well, and women too, spent money that they didn't have on alcohol. They ended up um, doing things that they wouldn't normally do because of alcohol. And there was a very influential book called In His Steps, written by Charles Sheldon. And the book posits the need to ask the question, what would Jesus do in every situation? And just try to put that into practice, regardless of what personal hardships it might create. And I read this book to our children a while back, and I was amazed reading the book how much it focused on politics and on the fact that Jesus would be pushing for social reforms. Jesus would run for office and push for laws against alcohol and gambling. Um, and we know that in the, 19, uh, the year 1920, the United States easily passed the 18th Amendment, which banned the production, import, and sales of alcohol. And the Christians celebrated at that point. They had done something which made a difference in the United States. Things were going to be better. So what did prohibition do? Well, we know that it did decrease the use of alcohol by 60 to 70 percent. Prior to Prohibition, it was estimated that the average United States um, gentleman composed 1.3 bottles of hard liquor a week. So decreasing this was a good thing. It also decreased the rates of alcohol-related disease, cirrhosis, alcoholic encephalopathies, and fetal alcohol syndrome. But, of course, on the other side, it increased the amounts of illegal activities related to alcohol production and importation. And interestingly, medicinal alcohol was still allowed. And so doctors began to write lots and lots of prescriptions for it. 
Charles Walgreen was able to expand the number of stores he had from 80 to 525 in the 1920s, almost entirely due to the medicinal alcohol sales that he had. And doctors were prescribing about 11 million alcohol prescriptions per year. And I suppose the point here is that people can find the ways around um, rules that Christians put into place in a political sense. Um, But at the same time, it did change behavior. People drank less, and there was less alcohol-related diseases. But unfortunately, what it did not do was make Americans Christians. And in 1933, in the heart of the Depression, the 18th Amendment was repealed by the 21st Amendment that allowed for alcohol sales again. It's very appealing to believe that Christians can change the world by voting the right politicians into office, or even running for office to encourage the right regulations. And while we can, through laws, force our neighbors to clean up the outside of their homes and maybe even the outside of their lives, only God can purify the inside. So what is the Christian's responsibility to government? I said that we would deal with that. The big passage that talks about this is in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Therefore one must be in subject, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, You also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God according to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And so Paul here begins by listing the things that governments do. We see that they are authorities, they are in charge of a society, And this is not conditional on their morality or their Christianity. The second thing is that they are supposed to enforce laws. Third thing is to punish those who do not obey those laws. And the final thing is that they are to collect taxes and protect the realm from outside forces. So that's what governments are supposed to do. And we know that some governments do these things better than others. So what are Christians to do in response? The first thing is that we are to obey. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, but Paul makes it clear that governments are in power. Literally, they are servants of God. And this is not to say that they're Christian, but that they are in power because of God. Jeremiah 27.5, this is Jeremiah writing to The Jewish people who had been taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar says, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. 
And the point that Jeremiah was making here was not that Nebuchadnezzar was Jewish or that he even had a respect to God. He maybe developed that later in his life. There's, there's some indication in the book of Daniel that perhaps that happened, but I don't think that's what he's saying here. He's saying that God was using Nebuchadnezzar. God was in charge and had put Nebuchadnezzar in place to bring the Jewish people into captivity for a reason. And they were not to resist that reason. Um, later on, the King Cyrus of the Persian Empire was spoken of as God's servant as well. And so today, the federal, state, and local officials of jurisdiction over us are God's servants, not because they're Christian, but because God has put them into place and is guiding the courses of human events. So what is the single reason that we should not obey these people? And that is clear. And we, I think we sometimes bring up this exclusion uh, pretty frequently. Um, but if they ask us to do something that is against God's law, or even something that is detrimental to our Christian walk, so something that is going to cause us to um, not grow the way that we should, I think it is the place where we are to disobey. So Acts 5.29 says, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And this was where the Pharisees had asked the apostles not to talk about Jesus anymore. They said, you know, you, you know, be good people, but just be quiet. And the apostles declined. They could not do that. And the Anabaptists really struggled with this in the Middle Ages because they were unwilling to serve in local militias and watches. And as a result, their lands were often forfeit, they often suffered terrible persecution, and they fled across Europe and finally to the United States as a result. More recently, even in this country, um, conscientious objector, objector was not a status that was available in this country up until... Um, the Civil War, you could pay to get out of fighting, and then later on you could do um, special service that would take the place of going to fight. So it wasn't that you weren't drafted, but you would go and serve in a nursing home or in a hospital or, or some, um, some non-war-related um, um, effort. But Anabaptists did suffer a lot during their um, time in this country up until, you know, the beginning of the 20th century for sure because of the fact that they would not go to fight. So Paul gives here two reasons that we are to obey the government. The first thing is that we are to obey to avoid God's wrath. That is, literally, God will judge those harshly who chose not to obey the laws of the land in which they live. The second thing is for reason of conscience. And I think this is a little bit less clear, but I think that what Paul is saying here is that if we choose not to obey certain laws of the land, even laws that we think are silly, we will weaken our conscience towards other things that are more important. So the point is clear. Christian has responsibility to obey even silly laws of a non-Christian government, basically in every situation that does not involve something that is against God's law or does not inhibit our ability to grow in relationship with God. 
So obedience is the first thing that is our duty. The second thing is respect and honor. So even in areas where we are unable to obey the government, we still have a responsibility to hold the officials over us with respect. And we know that even the early Christians, while they would not burn incense to the govern, um, to the emperor, they still always spoke respectfully. They always did their best to speak in a kind, loving way. In, in our hyper-partisan days, there's a tendency to speak disparagingly of people in governments that we don't like. And I'm not going to name names, but we know that there are a lot of people who will um, describe people in a really negative sense um, who are on one side of the aisle or the other. And this does not feel like something that Christians should be doing. The third thing is to pay taxes. So, of course, this could fall under the category of just simply obeying the government. And yet, Paul and Peter specifically spell this out. And I think it's important because we need to understand it. Christians are not alone in not wanting to pay their taxes. We can all think of better uses for that money. Um, and people have made all sorts of arguments about not paying taxes. Some have said it was illegal. Um, some have said that the government uses tax dollars for bad purposes, things like abortion clinics and the military. Um, and yet Jesus said, Matthew 20, verse 21, Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God's. And Jesus and Paul were speaking here of a Roman emperor, empire that was evil and spent lots of money on a huge military that was designed to enforce Roman rule. They built huge pagan temples with that money and were extremely hard on the Jewish people within the empire. And yet they'd said, pay your taxes. And then the final thing here is to pray for the government. Jeremiah 29, verse 7, this is in the same chapter as um, the verse that I talked about earlier that talks about Nebuchadnezzar as God's servant. He says, but seek the welfare of the city that is Babylon, where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And I think it is clear that we are to pray for the peace of the country that we find ourselves in, in this case, the United States and the world around us. And I think it is totally appropriate to pray for those who are in positions of power, that they would have wisdom, that they would enact laws that we do not struggle to obey. And I think as a final point, we should be praying most of all for revival, both in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. We are not to be praying that God would put in power Christian people because change comes not from people getting the right laws put into place, but from them meeting, meeting Jesus. So just to run over these duties that we have to the government, we have the duty to obey the government, to respect and honor those in government, to pay taxes, and then to pray for the government.
So I'm going to move on here to talk a little bit about the dangers that we face when we as Christians become too focused on politics. And I'm not going to say exactly what being too focused on politics is. I, I read the newspaper. I, um, I don't vote. I don't. Um, I try not to pick winners and losers and people who would be best put into government. But it is a struggle for me to know how much even reading and, and getting my mind turned against certain people is, um, is not helpful. So, so what are these dangers? The first thing that I see is something that I would call hyper-patriotism. So the person that came to mind here was Jonah. And I would like to read the fourth chapter of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord says, do you well to be angry? And God has a way of shaking us up, doesn't he? And Jonah went out of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it to the shade till he should see what would happen to the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down upon the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And when we read the book of Jonah, we don't understand at the beginning why Jonah doesn't want to go to Assyria. But by the end of the book, it is clear that Jonah felt that God should favor the nation of Israel to the exclusion of every other people on earth. And because Nineveh had been devastating to the children of Israel, and specifically to his country in the northern kingdom, he wanted them destroyed. And in point of fact, he was bothered by God's mercy when it came to any other nation on earth. And this can happen on a global scale where we see the United States as the most important nation, the nation which has God's favor. It can also happen on a local scale where we believe that our party affiliation is the only valid one and those who are on the opposite side are unworthy of redemption. Does God wish for the redemption even of Osama bin Laden and Hassan Hussein, of course he does. 
And only as we see from God's perspective can we move forward. Some other dangers are that we cease to see people with different views as humans in need of a Savior. So if we read John chapter 4, we find Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman at a well. And when the disciples returned, they didn't understand why Jesus would have been talking to this lady. Um, They did not see her as a person. Um, And yet, Jesus would have said that she needed the gospel as much as anyone. The thief on the cross needed the gospel. And if we don't see people as important as needing the gospel, we cannot reach them. Another thing is opportunity cost. So there is a tendency to spend time campaigning rather than evangelizing. And we only have 24 hours in each day. We only have seven days in each week. And every minute that we devote to other things than introducing people to our Savior are moments that we cannot get back. Ephesians 5, 15, and 16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. And I'm afraid that time spent on politics and political arguing is just time that we're not spending ministering to those with physical and spiritual needs around us. Another thing that could be is that we create antagonistic views among those who differ from us and make them less likely to accept the gospel from us. So John 12, 20 says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And I think it's clear that this is what the world around us needs, even if they are not asking for it. They need to see Jesus. And maybe our tendency is to interview them extensively to see if they are worthy of actually meeting him. But more than that, most people will only see Jesus in the ways in which we are Jesus to them. A final thing that I think is that it is Satan's seduction to tell us that politics is an easier way. Going to the temptations that the devil put before Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, it says, And again the devil took him, that is Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And what was this temptation? This temptation was Satan saying, There is an easier way. You can have all this. And you do not need to take the way of the cross. And I think he comes to Christians today and he says, Jesus has called you to evangelism and discipleship and hard work, and you can avoid all of that by voting the right people into office, 
by putting the right laws in place. Just use your political clout and things will be different. And the reality is that that's not enough. It could never be enough. Discipleship, evangelism, introducing people to Jesus is hard work. And yet at the same time, there are a lot of people around us who are good Christian people who are very involved with politics. The fundamentalists base a lot of what they say on Old Testament passages. And obviously in the Old Testament time period, Israel was supposed to be a theocracy, a country led by God. Um, and this changed when they had a king. The king tended to to shake things up for the good or for the bad, and it just really depended on what sort of king you had as to how good things were there. And so I think the fundamentalists do tend to... Um, they, they tend to make the United States a little bit more of a theocracy than it ever was. This country had some good Christian people in its beginning, but a lot of the people who were involved with the founding of this country were deists. They were people who believed that God was pretty hands-off and that he wasn't somebody you could know personally. And, and But regardless, I think the things that I brought up still apply. I'm not saying that people who get involved with politics are not Christian, but I do think that they're missing a blessing that could be had if they would focus on some other things. There is a tendency for us to feel attached to certain political groups and identities. And the reality is that neither Democrats nor Republicans are Christian, all the things that they espouse. We currently have two people running for president, and honestly, I don't think that either one has viewpoints that are completely what Jesus desires. And yet it's easy for us to become polarized and to defend the person that we defend. It's like a sporting team rather than even a decision about who should best run the country. And so I come down to the final question. What is our mission statement? How do we best put into place the mission of the gospel? The question is not how do we improve the behavior of those around us. It is how do we turn the hearts of people to God who desperately need him. In John 18, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. It's clear here that our focus is not to be on physical domination of others. This will not produce the results that Jesus desires. Jesus was not disappointed that his followers did not fight for him. He was only disappointed that they did not have the courage to stand with him. It is easy to get dragged into the idea that God's will cannot be done if the right groups are not elected and the right judges are not appointed and the right laws are not made. And the reality is something different. God's will is not something that can be circumvented so easily. 
And the most important thing for us today is that we see the gospel message spread here in Gladys and around the world. And anything that distracts or detracts from that is a problem. The heart of the gospel is this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And we will preach, reach people not by argument or grand speaking, but by living like Jesus and loving people to the utmost, and most of all, introducing a world who does not know him to Jesus.